Hello everyone, it's Emily. As you can probably tell, I lost my voice. It's actually sounding a lot better today, which is good. But yesterday it was, I couldn't speak in a volume over a whisper. So I didn't get to recording a new Amrata Ask for you all, but I didn't want to leave you without anything on Thursday. So we are going to play the ethical non-monogamy episode, which so many of you loved, even though this aired months ago, we just keep getting DMs and messages. Somebody in the street stopped me the other day and was like, oh my God, your episode on ethical non-monogamy. I feel like it's just something a lot of people are thinking about. So um, enjoy that. And I will be back next week, hopefully either with a sexier, scratchier voice or just a normal one. Thanks, everyone, for understanding and enjoy this episode. I'm actually recording this from bed. It's my first episode. I'm recording at home and not in the studio at Sony. I got my microphone, I got my headphones, and I have a bunch of books and research printed out around me about ethical non-monogamy. So today we are going to be talking about ethical non-monogamy, something I've heard about through the years, but honestly, up until I read this uh, essay in the Paris Review that I'm going to be talking about by Jean Garnett, entitled Scenes from an Open Marriage, I don't know, I hadn't really like considered it or thought about it as a a real thing or, or, or got behind the philosophy behind it and thought about why people are so interested in it. So leading up to this episode, I learned that there's a lot of information, not only on non-ethical non-monogamy, but also on polyamory. And there's tons of literature. Right now I have the ethical slut next to me and polysecure which um, were two that were recommended to me. Polysecure merges attachment style with ethical non-monogamy. And the ethical slut turns out to be basically the Bible um, to to ethical non-monogamy. And I've really enjoyed it so far. I'm on page 50. So today we're going to talk about this essay that I think brings up a couple different points. And I'm going to be weaving that in with a conversation I had with someone I'm going to call B. Um, who was in a ethically non-monogamous relationship, a marriage. They didn't want to go on the record, but they shared a lot of insights about their experience that I found really interesting. And then we're going to talk to my friend who is just someone who who's always kind of thought outside of the box when it comes to n- the nuclear family and about sex and, and is very forward thinking. So let's get into it. Stay tuned for more High Low with Emrata. Welcome back to High Low with Emrata. So Stephanie Danler, who was on the podcast a couple weeks ago, actually was the one to send me this essay because we talk a lot about raising kids. And this particular essay, uh, Scenes from an Open Marriage, Jean Garnett, um, published in the Paris Review, is 
really, even though it's about an open marriage and this woman's experience with it, um, it's really about building a family and in a non-traditional sense and kind of the, the tension between the individual and the unit. And what I've learned from the ethical slut and from doing some of this reading, you know, so much of the way we think about traditional family structure is to raise kids and to like build a life together. And um, there's like practical kind of rules around having children. And when I spoke to B, I'm going to call them B. B is a uh, 36-year-old black woman whose pronouns are they and she. And they were super, super open and told me all kinds of stuff. They just didn't want to have their voice on the podcast, which totally respect. One of the things B said to me was there's a, there's a real difference between ethical non-monogamy in marriages that involve kids or relationships that involve kids and ones that don't. And, um, this essay definitely is about building a family and, you know, having your needs met as an individual once your family expands from just the two of you. So I'm going to read a couple of my favorite lines um, from this essay and relate it to my conversation with B. So in this essay, this couple has a new baby and her husband is the one who talks about opening it up. And she, you know, considers it, considers the history of a traditional family and about how she feels about sex postpartum and what she wants and, you know, basically both of their needs. And she's she's deciding what um, whether or not she wants to do it. And um, at one point, she quotes from scenes from a, mar- um, a marriage. You and I have taken refuge in a hermetically sealed existence. The lack of oxygen has smothered us. Um, that's from Bergman's uh, scenes from a marriage, which the title of this essay borrows from. Um, and then she says, finally, I asked my husband, which scenario endangers us more, you sleeping with other women or you not sleeping with other women? I told him to think about it, assess and render a verdict. I would do whatever gave us the best chance. So B hasn't actually read this um, essay, but interestingly, one of her points about ethical non-monogamy is that there are a lot of things she likes about it. She says um, she sh- you should trust your relationship enough to entertain the possibility. But, you know, she said to me, in some communities, especially in New York and California, there is this kind of attitude that non-monogamy is not risky. Like, it's totally safe. And she said, ultimately, is it, it is risky. And I think that it's important, you know, to recognize that. She said people need to have de-risked the experience. That's how she put it. I was thinking about this part of the essay when she said that because I think what the writer is getting at is it's also risky to try to stay in a monogamous relationship. Relationships are risky. So um, I just thought that was kind of an interesting note. A little bit more about B. She was in a relationship for five years, monogamous relationship with a man before they decided to start to open it up. She'd always identified as bi. Um, she identifies now as queer, but to use her language at that time, she was using the language being bisexual. And she was really interested in bringing women into their marriage. So opposite of the um, essay, she was the one who wanted to open up the relationship. And it's really interesting. I never heard anybody talk about this this way, but she said, you know, when people are considering opening up their relationships, they should think about what dosage of non-monogamy they want. 
just like scheduling, like how much of your life do you want to have be about this? Um, and she said they started with a very, very, you know, when sometimes when people say we open up our marriage, they're just doing a full dose. And she was like, we started with a small dose. They had a threesome and then waited a year before B started dating a woman um, and seeing a woman. And then they actually ended up in a thruple where she said she learned a lot about her own preferences sexually. And so that's that's her background a little bit about that, just because I'm going to be referencing her and our conversation. One of the things about, you know, non-monogamy that we touched on in the beginning of this is like the idea of an individual and a unit. And that's what I love so much about this essay. There's this piece um, where she says, what is there to want after all? He is mine, sacredly in sickness and in other states of being. Except he is not, and his absolute non-propriety realness can flash out so suddenly the spell of marital monotony is reversed and he becomes again a free man. Sometimes this happens when I see him from afar, struck by the full shape of him, as if sighting a rare animal in the wild, or when I watch him play the drums, the muscles in his neck twitching. She goes on this actually really beautiful description. Um, and it's kind of sexy. I think, again, there's this merging that we expect with marriage and long-term partnership of two people really colliding into one and becoming a one singular identity, but that's just not the reality of um, human beings. We are separate individuals. And, you know, she's talking about this this kind of really comforting thought of he's mine and we're bound to each other. But then there's this kind of like animal moment that's kind of hot where she, you know, thinks about seeing him from afar playing a drum and recognizing that he's his own person. And I think that's something really beautiful and important to do in relationships. And I think that's where, when I was reading The Ethical Slut, so much of ethical non-monogamy and people's interest in opening up their long-term relationships is, um, it, it stems from a place of wanting to have individuality. And by the way, B told me that some people don't love, especially in the polyamory community, like don't love the idea of primary, secondary relationships. They said that that language works for them. So um, I'm going to reference it, but I know that polyamory, it's there isn't supposed to be kind of a first and a second. And I said, I actually was asking them, I was like, so what does that mean? Because if you have a prime, if you are like married, isn't that your primary person? And she said that it's different for everyone. Um, and that actually, you know, the idea of commitment and the word commitment, you know, it's really important in these relationships to be very specific about what commitment means. If you're not being committed just physically or sexually, like what, what are the limits and bounds? And um, one of the funny things that I really liked she said to me was um, that her therapist said, polyamory is more talking than fucking because you need to kind of over communicate. And that's such a key part of opening up your relationship. And that's what, that's the ethical part of it, right? Is everything's above board. Everything is communicated and consent is a huge part of it. But really it's about figuring out, you know, what do you want? And another thing in this essay I really like is how much she talks about going back to the parish review essay. How much she talks about like the experience of jealousy and and the thrill, you know, having her partner come home. She knows he's been with another woman. He gets in bed. He's kind of excited. He kisses her, and it's like confused. There's a lot of what one might think would be contradictory feelings, like kind of thrilling, kind of 
upsetting, but also kind of sexy. And, um, and another moment in the essay that I really like that kind of is to me the most painful is um, she's driving in the car and she sees a Spotify play- playlist that her husband has made. And it has like all these really core kind of to his favorite music tastes songs on it. And she knows it's for someone else. It's not like made for casual listening and her daughter's in the back and she just feels that, you know, burning in her chest, that outrage, that jealousy. And um, what B said to me about open relationships is, you know, in in traditional relationships, jealousy is, to use her language, a uh, red light issue. It indicates, you know, that there's behavior that, you know, maybe you see someone flirting at a party, you, you see a partner flirting at a party, you're like, oh, are you cheating on me? Whatever. In polyamorous and ethically non-monogamous relationships, jealousy is something you have to live with. She says it's really like something you have to learn to metabolize and process and, you know, sit with. And she gave some recommendations like you don't want to build resentment. You don't want it to eat you alive. So you need to have friends to talk to. You need to be able to do something with that emotion and that feeling. Here is um, another piece of the essay I really liked. She said, I've heard the argument that true intimacy cannot exist where one partner is having any significant preoccupying experience from which the other is excluded. Maybe there's something to that. Then again, people find all kinds of ways to be preoccupied. That really stuck with me because I was just thinking about relationships that I've been in or or witnessed to and how you see like people disengage and become preoccupied with like going, I mean, the stereotype, like you picture a suburban dad going golfing or um, a mom like drinking white wine or becoming obsessed with her kids and all the ways you can leave a relationship that aren't just sexual. And actually what, you know, I've kind of read about the idea of ethical non-monogamy is that in many ways it's coming towards, right? You're you're doing more talking than anything else. Everything has to be communicated. I, I like that line a lot. That was another thing B said to me, which um, I think this essay really touches on in an interesting way, that this will transform, opening your relationship up transforms your relationship. And she actually, like I said, hadn't read this Paris Review essay, but she likened it to to having kids. Like you're a unit, you're, there's two of you. It's this really intimate relationship. And then you welcome in a child or any other person and your bubbles kind of burst and there's no going back. It's like the before and then the after when there was two and then there's more. And what I love about this essay is that the second part of it ends up being a lot about the nanny that her and her husband have hired who this writer, this woman is so grateful to because she can trust her child with this woman. And it's another way of basically outsourcing some of the labor of of their relationship and of their family to another woman, um, obviously different than the nature of like outsourcing intimacy and the kind of things that her and her husband are craving outside of their marriage. But the way she feels a relief, you know, by having this woman taking care of her child and her being able to close the door and get work done. Um, I thought that was just interesting. And, you know, and it ends, well, I don't want to ruin it for you completely, but I do recommend you read it yourself because there's so many things I haven't covered in here. It ends really around that that kind of non-traditional table where there's a hired person. Um, but another thing that came up that I thought was an interesting parallel between my conversation with B and this this essay um, is something about being a feminist and, and worrying about the women who come into the relationship on and 
B was talking about that in her thruple, it was really important for her to pay for them, her and her husband, to pay for everything that, that was involved around the relationship and that this woman didn't have to pay for anything because she said, you know, there are real financial benefits to being married. That's real. And this woman who was involved with them didn't get that. And there were a lot of things she doesn't get from the relationship, right? Like she said, you know, they weren't going to be the first that this woman would call when she had a bad day or if there something really bad happened and they weren't providing that. So it was important to her ethically to be financially supportive of this woman. That's in this essay too. She actually writes about, she said, I did and do worry, especially about the younger girls in their 20s. Were they all right, these kids? How do they feel about being, quote, on the side? Occasionally I stumbled into something like outrage on their behalf, as though I were the spirited friend in their drama. Fuck that guy. Weren't they being exploited? In fact, wasn't I exploiting them, outsourcing the labor of care, pleasure, attention, affirmation to the scattered, precarious workforce? How sinister. And then she says, like, these women would probably uh, smirk at my anxiety for them, feel insulted by it. But I think it's an interesting point, kind of like the power dynamics and what women who are involved with married people um, get out of the relationship. I, I really love how she writes about the experiences of sleeping with other men. The first guy she sleeps with, she has kind of like fireworks with and really great sex and it really turns her on. And then she has sex with this younger guy and it like totally doesn't work. Um, and she's just like, there's so many dynamics about this, about their relationship. And just even though they've only met that night that make it unsexy to her, the way she writes about it is really cool kind of side note, but you should definitely um, check out this piece in the Paris Review and um, yeah, just as far as B goes, she's now in a monogamous relationship with another woman. And um, some of her advice was just, you know, again, really being explicit about what commitment is, what um, what you're looking for outside of the the marriage. Like literally, are you down to cuddle or not down to cuddle? Do you want to go do activities or not do activities? Um, in her marriage, they had protected weekends and- she was talking about, you know, as a queer person, the difference between cis hetero people's relationship to open relationships and um, queer people in ways that's really interesting. But we'll get to that a little bit later. Let's move on to talking to a friend of mine who um, she actually was the first person who gave me All About Love by Bell Hooks. And we're going to talk about that. Um, but I wanted her to come on because she knows a lot of people who are in the ethical non-monogamy space and has dabbled in it herself and just has a really interesting kind of philosophy and perspective. Again, this was an episode I put together knowing that there will be a part two. So I please really am encouraging you guys all to submit your experiences and thoughts around ethical non-monogamy and polyamory via hilo.fm. Stay tuned for more Hilo with Emrata. Ethical non-monogamy. It's something that comes up a lot with us, I feel like, for various different reasons. 
And you've been interested in it for a long time. What's your relationship to polyamory and ethical non-monogamy? Yeah, I mean, I think I... I'm trying to think of like where my first kind of exposure to that as a framework came from. But honestly, one was like watching the movie Cabaret with my parents at maybe like 10. And my dad like pausing to explain to me that what a menage a trois was. <laughs> oh my God. So I and, probably... And you... Okay. <laughs> you were interested. I was definitely curious about what exactly was going on. I think my parents to some degree knew I was like, I was expressing interest in men and women. I think as a, as you know, I think honestly, even prepubescent, but like it was, so I think part of that was a response to whatever they were already sensing in me. Yeah. And part of it was also just living in a very kind of permissive, um, you know, open-minded household. (laughs) Yeah have you practiced non-monogamy or what's like, what's your relationship to it now as an adult? Yeah. I mean, I think I practiced like serial monogamy as a young person, you know, like I feel like reading Esther Perel or something, reading captivity, like serial monogamy is a kind of non-monogamy in a way, perhaps like the relationship is exclusive in that moment, but it is a series of partners. I mean, I dated men and women and was never quite sure how to reconcile and also plenty of non-binary folks as well. I think I would describe myself as like pan if I had to pick a term, but I think that was never something I had like a, an intentional approach toward so much as was just kind of wandering. And then I had a partner who maybe in my very early twenties um, had been in a, you know, a consensual non-monogamous or an e relationship prior to me and proposed, gave me a copy of The Ethical Slut. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> um, and I was like, okay, sure. And at the time, this was a, a male partner and I was like, mm, okay, we'll see about mm-hmm. this. It felt like I was skeptical. And then upon embracing, it was like, oh, actually this is a framework that really, really works for me. And then also, I think once you start exploring it, you realize that so many other people in your life already are. But however, right. what degree of open or not, or what phase or stage that in that exploration they are, I don't think it's um, a narrow curiosity. I think lots of people are having these conversations with themselves about how to reorganize romantic lives and family lives in ways that feel... Um, well, fulfilling. it's funny you say that because on this episode, we start with a essay about sort of a, a new family and they open up their marriage. And the other person that I talked to about this was really clear that it's sort of ethical non-monogamy is very different in when there are kids in, in the mm-hmm. family structure versus not, which has become very clear. But what do you like about the concept of ethical non-monogamy because, you know, I know you as somebody who's like sexually in touch with yourself, like, and your desires, but you also are somebody who's really interested in ethical ways of living in general. So when, you know, I was thinking about this podcast, I was like, oh, this is the perfect person to come on because, you know, we're talking about two things that, that seem to, <laughs> that come up a lot for us. That's um, true. In conversation. Yeah. And, and two things that I think, you know, I guess like, Yeah, I think the definition of love that I like best that we've definitely talked about is I think the one that Bell Hooks takes from Eric Fromm, but I think of it as Bell Hooks' definition, that love is a practice and not just like a feeling or a sensation. It's not just like having a lot of affection for someone or care or lust or longing or need or any of those things. 
It's actually the practice of nurturing another's and one's own spiritual growth. And that seems really simple to me and really beautiful. And I think what I like about engaging with whatever degree of ENM or CNM you would like is that it gives you a kind of more active framework to practice caring for one another instead of sort of falling into a default sort of like, this is the received framework. This is something being imposed on me. This is something I'm obligated to do. This is something, this is a feeling I'm powerless to. And like, you know, that it's kind of like, you know, I think for me, a lot of, especially like more heteronormative romantic frameworks felt like one way tickets to, or even the way we talk about it. A lot of our language describes it sort of as like a one way trip rather than something that's like ripe for kind of creative reinvention and rediscovery. So I think that it is, it, to me, it opens up a lot of creative possibilities and a space for sort of like radical honesty. I, I already am like cringing at those words. No, no. I think it's, it's really interesting what you're saying because about like active, the act of loving, it's something we talk about. And you actually were the person who told me to read all about love, Bell Hook's book, where she really lays that out. But one of the people that I talked to about this practice, she was saying like, you know, it's, she's found that as a queer person who's both been in heteronormative relationship and in queer relationships that heteronormative people tend to not be as good at communicating Mm -hmm. um, or as like, (laughs) or as just interested in it um, as queer people. And that it's one of the reasons she thinks they think that uh, that queer people have an easier time with non-monogamy is partly just because they're better at communicating. That makes a lot of sense to me. I think also when I look at my own life, the models I have for like really rich, loving, functional, fruitful, ethically non-monogamous situations are almost all queer. I think it's also your imagination. I think if you fit very neatly into a prescribed gender role, then it may be harder to like see around the edges of that picture and the sort mm-hmm. of like the, think outside the box. Yeah, the received ideas of what partnership, what a family, and what marriage, you know, culturally for an American need to look like. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I didn't get a chance to like read the ethical slut back to back. I'm on page 40 or something. Uh, let's see what page I'm on. Ah, 52. I'm doing better than I thought. And I think we both were just talking about the one we just got, Polysecure, mm-hmm. which is two, another combination of our favorite things, attachment <laughs> styles and um, polyamory. So a new, a newly discovered, very helpful framework for me. Crossover. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Aside from sort of the philosophical macro picture around ethical non-monogamy, like what do you think are the most important practices? Mm, okay. Yeah, I feel like the most important piece of it, which is probably the hardest and actually probably the most essential for any relationship framework is being unflinchingly honest with yourself (laughs) about what you want, what you need, what you're scared of and where your boundaries are. And to see it as a privilege to say like, well, what does this person really want? Like what is their most expansive, exciting vision of their future and of themselves and how am I supporting and exploring that with them and then negotiate and explore. It can be like a really fun and exciting frontier of exploration rather than like a place of dirty, dark (laughs) secrets that actually can be kind of the most creative 
you know, enriching part of your life. I mean, it's definitely true that when you take fear out of any equation, it becomes a time to be curious, which can be play-like. Something that's come up in the other parts of this podcast and this episode was one from the essay that I was reading from where the writer says, like, I was wondering, like, what is bigger risk for us to open our marriage up or for us to stay monogamous. And when I was speaking with B, they said the same thing of like, ultimately opening a relationship up is a risk. And then I said to her like, yeah, but isn't staying in one also a risk? And so I think a lot of people who are not open to ethical non-monogamy are scared, but like everything with relationships is scary, (laughs) including staying committed and staying in the relationship. 100% 100% agree. That was an explicit an explicit discussion in ending my last relationship, actually. Like, we were in couples therapy. And, you know, I met this person who I was very deeply in love with and shared many really happy years with. And from the beginning, I sort of was like, hey, this is a framework that I'm really, that's really been exciting and interesting to me and that I found really enriching and that I think I want more of in my life. I think that, like, you know, I... I personally do really like the idea of having a partner. Lots of people are into much more creatively, you know, organized romantic and family lives. I do like the idea of having a partner, but I also like the idea of there being a lot of room to have other kinds of loving relationships in there. So I wouldn't say I'm polyamorous necessarily, since I don't know that I have that much emotional bandwidth for conducting multiple really rich loving partnerships. Mm -hmm. I'm tired. Um, so, but I am interested in ethical anatomy and that was something from the beginning I sort of proposed and my partner was like, cool, not for me. And I was like, oh, yeah. Okay. I mean, good, good for both of you for being able to know what your needs were and, and communicate them to each other, even if they didn't align. Absolutely. And I think where I maybe made a misstep was I sort of was like, okay, well, um, how important is that? proceeded with this relationship, knowing that that was sort of, I was like, well, you know, sex is uh, a small part (laughs) of a relationship Mm -hmm. was sort of how I thought of it in my mind. It was like, well, you can't, you know, like uh, there's so much I love about this person. There's so much I love about the life we could build together, the life we are building together, about their character, about their, you know, the things that give their life meaning, about just being together, their family, their friends. There's so many other things that are wonderful. How important is that thing? And I think by sublimating that and not actually engaging with that part of myself and that thinking that an answer was just denial <laughs> or repression, you know, that, that that would be functional and that if you loved someone enough, you should be able to sort of like give foundational stuff up. I think that was like the seed of our demise. <laughs> You're being hard on yourself. I mean, I think what I'm, what I've gotten from just what I've learned from making this episode and from the ethical slut is like, in a lot of ways, people see this as kind of the ultimate act of love Mm -hmm. um, because you are trying to stay together. You're not just walking away. You're saying like, how can we find a, a middle road, like a path where we can still be committed? We can still share a life while also, you know, fulfilling these individual end of desires. But I have to wrap this up, sadly. What I think is really remarkable about you, even though I know what you're saying is that, you know, you have felt afraid and of being totally honest about it, whatever. I do think you are so open to it. And and even with new partners, as you are falling in love and whatever, you're not afraid to say, this is something that's really important to me and interesting to me. How do you feel about it? 
And yeah, I just was curious, like how you've kind of tapped into that, that bravery. Well, thank you. I would say, I mean, the second you kind of like cross over the line, you realize there's like a million people swimming in that water already. You know, like for me, it felt Mm. like a big cliff to dive off. And then you do it and you're like, oh, (laughs) everyone's already over here. You know, that it was, there's so, I had like, once you start looking for models, you find them. And so Mm -hmm. to me, all of a sudden it didn't feel so fearful because it was like, you know, I know that I want and that I really cherish like loving relationships that are long lasting and deep and profound. And, and so I think I was worried about losing that, that by choosing Mm. complexity or creative exploration, you were somehow sacrificing stability or longevity. And that does not feel like a trade-off to me at all anymore. So it doesn't feel that scary to me to be open about that now because it doesn't feel like I'm risking losing commitment or a healthy partnership or a stable family life by engaging these desires. And then in terms of bringing them up with other people, it feels two ways. One, that like the more you talk about it, the more space you make for it to not be like a freaky weird thing, but to just be like an actual valid way to enjoy your romantic, loving lives without shame and weirdness. And two, there are so many people out there, really good, loving people. I would say, again, like the EM community in New York and in California and LA, San Francisco, it feels like it's a lot of people who are really warm, welcoming, and great at communicating. So I feel I've had it modeled for me really well. Well, I could talk to you about this forever. Thank you for taking the time. And we might be bringing you back on for part two. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. I think this is all fascinating. Um, There's so much more to be said. I am currently trying to read The Ethical Slut and um, also Polysecure. And I'm sure there are one million other books that I should be reading. I would love your recommendations on those. Um, Also TikTok. Holy shit. If you look up um, non-monogamy on TikTok, welcome to a whole world of people sharing super intimate things about their lives and their sex lives um, in a really cool way. And, you know, there was a part of me that was like, do I just like make this episode basically just break like the book club, the ethical slut? But I just wanted it to be more organic and about kind of the things that I've been thinking about people in my life and things I've been reading. Um, but maybe I will do that because they really break down so many and, and that in the TikToks I'm seeing, like people have themes of like jealousy, you know, scheduling and blah, 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 like very specific things that you wouldn't necessarily think about that these people are really considering. And I kind of think there's something really beautiful about the fact that people are trying to make their commitment to another person work. Um, And, you know, I think we've all seen divorce and we've all seen how much um, traditional family structure does fail people. And maybe people stay together, but they're not happy as individuals or they're not fulfilled as individuals. And um, there's something really hopeful about the idea, at least to me, that people are trying to think of new ways to, to be in love. Can't wait to hear your thoughts. Thank you so much for listening and tune in next week for more. Go to hilo.fm to submit your war stories, your voice notes. I'm really looking forward to hearing from all of you.
Buy Low with Emrata is a Sony Music Entertainment, Bitch Era Media, and Something Else production. Our executive producers are me, Emily Radikowski, and Sarita Wesley. And our associate producer is Rachel Choder. Today's episode was engineered by Samantha Gatsik with original music by The Crystal Pharaoh. Thanks for listening. 